0: Welcome, everybody, to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where we're helping people take steps towards wholeness in spirit and soul and body. I'm your host today, Richard Dahlstrom, Abby Odio, is just returning from maternity leave. She'll be joining us more regularly quite soon. But today, I have a very special guest, Jim Wellman, who's not just an author and a professor, but he's a friend of mine. Jim's a professor at the Jackson School of International Studies at University of Washington. Go Huskies! He chaired the Imperative Religion Program and is now leading a new initiative for a Center on Global Christian Studies. He's written several books on international violence, religious violence, religion, and human security, as well as books on evangelicals versus liberals, a book on Rob Bell, and now his most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, High on God, How Mega Churches Won the Heart of America. With his family, he attends Bethany Community Church at the Green Lake location, which I lead. He's also a Presbyterian pastor. He was formerly a youth pastor off and on for 15 years. And his book, High on God, gives this sociological explanation for why megachurches have proven to be so effective in their ministry in North America, how they create kind of a small town atmosphere by making people feel welcome, giving them a reason to come to church, providing preaching that's relevant and giving them a chance to believe and be transformed, offering them community and an opportunity to serve those in need in their communities. So we're going to be talking about that book because we're living in a time when lots of people of every generation, but particularly people under 30, I would say, are pretty much done with religion. And I want to ask Jim about how that thesis interfaces with our conversation. But welcome, Jim. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Richard. Great to be with you.
0: We're remote, of course, because of the coronavirus. I'm up here in the mountains
1: where I live most of the time. Where are you? I am in uh, my house in Finney Ridge. Oh, perfect. Okay. Good. Because you're a professor,
0: just to start things off, I'm kind of interested in how, how you've had to adapt in this coronavirus period in which we find ourselves. How is your life different for virtue of the virus?
1: Right now? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's quite something. We Uh, The University of Washington looks like a ghost town. And so, you know, about a month ago we left campus and we weren't invited back. Uh, So we missed the cherry blossoms. And really, in a sense, I am fully online. Had to learn Zoom overnight and had to put two fairly extensive courses online with Zoom. So I'm getting used to Zoom, getting used to lecturing, looking at myself. On my computer and, you know, it seems to be going well. I think I mentioned this to you, my A Life Worth Living course. I usually lose people, but this quarter we've gained people. So my sense is that something's kind of churning in our kids and young people and they want to know about what makes a life worth living. So that's kind of exciting.
0: First of all, it's amazing that University of Washington is offering a Life Worth Living course. And then that you're teaching it, because I know you, I'm sure it's an outstanding course. This isn't our main point today, but tell us a little bit, what's the, what's the point of that course and what prompted you to create it?
1: Well, it was about three years ago, and, and you know that my first wife died, obviously, about seven or eight years ago now. And in the midst of that, it was a very difficult time. I just began doing a lot of thinking about what does make a life worth living, and had always thought that I would create something, something of a course to do it on. And I've done that. I combine that with also a book by a Stanford group on design your life. So it's not just about you know what makes a life worth living, although that's my main point, but it's also how to turn what makes your life worth living into a career into vocation, so a calling. Um, and I called it Religion 101 so I could use sources in religion, and uh, you know, sources in faith to talk about that and what that means. And so you mentioned that I was a, a youth pastor. I've always done that sort of on the side, but I've always loved that. I've always loved, you know, sort of mentoring young people right. and to see them come into their own uh, experience the, the deeper desires of their heart, to watch that blossom. And I tell you, Richard, I, I'm sure you know what this is like, but by the end of the first two, you know, the first, I've taught it twice now, but by but the end of the courses, they turn in an eight page constitution of who they are, what they love, and where they want to go with their lives. And that is all. You know, basically 99% of the time, these are transformational uh, moments and life-changing plans. I could talk to you the whole time about that class, but just seeing young people light up, literally, and and I'm sure you've seen that too. Completely. Uh, there, well, there's nothing like it. And so for me, it's not so much about religion or about transformation through religion But I've always felt and and always thought of the Christian faith, the religious faith, traditions as basically spiritual, personal, emotional, cognitive, transformational processes. And you can frame that in such a way that you don't, you you know, I can't preach the gospel, obviously, in a a classroom like that. Right. Uh, But you can see transformation and in a sense, you know, the uh, the book High on God was to study sociologically what happens when human beings are high on God. What happens when human beings are high on purpose, meaning, and when they found the desires of their heart? And that is very difficult to do.
0: Very difficult. I would say that uh, one of the things that gives me great hope in what you're articulating is like Ecclesiastes chapter three, right around verse nine and 10, after that famous to everything, there's a season, there's a time to hate and a time to love and a time for war and a time for peace. At the very end of that, the author goes, God has placed eternity in Mm -hmm. the human heart. And there is this thing where people are, we're made for meaning. We're made for hope. We're made for beauty. We're made for justice. And so that you're offering a class that enables people to look at their unique gifts and move into that is outstanding. I've got a, an interviewee coming up here on the podcast who's working closely with Design Your Life, so we'll be unpacking more of that yeah. in head, but I, I'm just so thrilled that you're doing that. When you wrote this book, High on God, I'm really curious, A, what motivated you to write it, and B, what you discovered that surprised you. So give me a little bit about the book, because I think it's really timely for the moment in which we find ourselves.
1: Yeah, it's been a long time coming, really. My first book was a dissertation on uh, fourth Presbyterian church in downtown Chicago, which is, in liberal Protestant terms, a kind of megachurch. And we didn't talk much about it back then. You know, it's all kind of developing right then. You know, I've always been really intensely interested in how healthy organizations function well. I wasn't particularly interested in talking about the the downside of religion, although I've done that. I've because you know, because of nine eleven and other kind of historical and inter- international crises forced me to say, "Hey, religion has a dark side." But the megachurch project and my own interest in human development, transformation—how do leaders make that happen? You know, what is a charismatic leader? Is that a problem or is that a desirable characteristic of good leaders? Is and the megachurches that get most of the publicity often are the scandals and. In a sense, when we started to get into this megachurch research, and these are 12 churches, kind of random churches across the country, which I don't name and I I won't name them now. So they're typical, in a sense, megachurches, but in a way we started with a thought that we'll find problems and we'll find manipulation or taking advantage of people. Honestly, this book took seven or eight years to write. And the first three years, we tried to figure out what's wrong with these places instead of figuring out what's right with them. Yeah, Yeah, I get it. Which is really cynical in a certain way. But for a lot of different reasons, I became aware that, you know, in part because I did an earlier book on Evangelicals versus Liberals. And I think it's okay for me to say that you were your church and you were part of that project. And what I continued to find was that evangelicals aren't so much a problem as really an answer to this postmodern generation that we're living in, where denominations begin to not really matter as much. You know, we're really seeing the obsolescence, really, of American denominations. It's quite dramatic.
0: Oh, Um, yeah. I'd say the last 20 years, right? That's been a huge trend.
1: Yeah. So I think megachurches, in a sense, fill that void. And then when we got into the research, we really began to realize we really ne- needed to come up with a whole different theory. And so we really kind of transformed our own thinking and then came up with some ideas about what really goes on.
0: You know, it's interesting because I travel and teach a bit over in Europe as well, where there's a state church, which kind of prevails, I would say, and almost to the point, not entirely, but almost to the point where other things are viewed as cults. And in America, you have kind of this entrepreneurial, almost capitalistic free market within Christianity as well. And there's a certainly a downside to that, and you and I have talked about that. But this book seems to highlight the upside of it in in one way, in that you've kind of identified that these megachurches are looking at culture and what are the needs in the culture and trying to meet those needs. At least that's how I understand part of what you're saying.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's for sure. You know, we really began to think about it and, and there's there's theorists that come up here, and that is a guy named Randall Collins, and I won't get real deep into this, but he he believes that at the heart of what motivates human beings is emotional energy. You know that's kind of a generic term, and we kind of begin to spell it out. So we're really interested, Richard, in what is human nature, what causes people to want to become a part of a group, and what happens when that process occurs. And so. Right. We go back to a, a, a key theme for me was human beings are homo duplex. That is, we are deeply individual, but we desperately need interaction with others. Yes, and that's right. the question is really in society, and, and Durkheim, who is really the father of modern sociology, said that, What sociology studies is this interaction. How does a society create something in which individuals can flourish and do it in such a way that they both are able to sacrifice some of their individuality for the sake of the group? Now, you might be thinking, what else is the body of Christ, right? I mean, in in a certain sense, the body of Christ is the homo duplex. I mean, I I don't say that really in the book, but I think it's really important because Christ is not just the representative of the self, himself, but of God and the community of faith. And so it's a perfect, you know, sort of symbol of what we might think of when, you know, what is the body of Christ in its local context?
0: This longing for community and the principle that you articulate totally resonates with me, both as a human being and right. as a pastor. I mean, I think I have this longing for community. Everyone does to some extent. I think what's intriguing to me is the caricature of mega churches often is that this is not a place you'll find community. You'll find a show you'll find maybe good teaching, you'll find compelling worship, you'll find creativity, but it's too big to find community. And so how did you find that community itch met in megachurches?
1: It's a great point. Um, It's quite the opposite, really, is Americans have gotten used to, in part, you know, these larger group settings. And in a sense, megachurches are copying that process. But what we found instead of people being manipulated, being coerced, being exploited in these mega churches, we break it down to that human beings have these six fundamental desires. And that is one, the belonging, the need to, to belong, to be accepted, to the ability to be surprised really to be kind of activated in their more in their deepest affective parts of themselves three to find a reliable leader who is asking questions and answering them in such a way that you feel somehow he or she comes up with answers to the questions that people are asking and then there's this sense of deliverance or the or the promise of deliverance or the possibility that the problem or the question I'm struggling with at my heart can be solved or overcome. And then megachurches not, not just answer that question, but then they say, hey, we not only help you answer that question, but they, we give you a purpose to serve. Right, and, Absolutely. And then, of course, the last is uh, to remember, not just remember the faith or, or that you're loved or who you are, but also that you have a group. And, you know, you guys are so expert at Bethany at that and creating small groups, but also service-orientated groups, everything for all different ages. You know, every possible need could be met that might be met. So, yeah, that gives you, you know, one orientation. Now, I think you would say, Richard... That sounds pretty good, right? Exactly. Yeah, so
0: far I resonate with what you're saying.
1: Right. So the the question is, is this an exploitive process? Is this a coercive process? Is this sort of being people being coerced into or manipulated into these organizations? And what we say and what I believe is, no way, man. You know, human beings, yeah, they can be manipulated and, and people can be fooled, but they're also savvy shoppers savvy buyers right and they're, they're, they can smell out a rat you know we kind of came to the point where well either we're going to believe our data that the extraordinary sense of fulfillment that people experience or we say it's it's delusional and you have to be really cynical to go towards the latter right you know i was a little bit cynical about evangelicalism in in my past in part yeah
0: we've, we've talked about that extensively uh, yeah
1: and that was a part of growing up and going to Princeton seminary and the liberal protestant heritage was in my early years still kind of at its height to some extent hadn't really hit its hit the wall like it has and you know a part of what they sold themselves on is was by saying Oh, evangelicals are dumb, or they just manipulate people. You know, it's a simplistic faith. It's not really biblical. You know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Took me some time to figure out. I don't believe that anymore. And I've cleared my mind of that. And that was, I would say that to your listeners, you know, just to kind of stand up for academics. Right. and, And that's to say, and I really believe this about the University of Washington, we're there to find out what's really going on not to throw all prejudice out and and get it proven. Right. And that's in part why I love secular academic life is you just go out there and prove your point, find right. the data, interpret it, and then you're, you know, you get peer reviewed and you get torn apart if you're trying to BS your way.
0: Through. Yeah. It can't, if it's just pure propaganda, it's not going to last, is it?
1: No. No, it doesn't get published.
0: That's right. And that's a good thing, I would say, definitely.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, totally.
0: So as you go down this road and you're a bit, uh, I guess, surprised by your discoveries, meanwhile, there's a changing reputation regarding the word evangelical due to politics. And I just want to first, A, name that. And B, say, we're not talking about that today, but not because I want to ignore it. I'd like to have you back to talk about that another day, because I think that's also a really important topic. But uh, to carry this particular conversation further you and i have had a couple of conversations about the changing sentiments regarding institutional christianity on the part of people under the age of 30 you're in contact with these people on a regular basis how does what you're discovering interface with your experience of that demographic
1: yeah yeah we're kind of not you and i but in in some ways the culture and i are going in opposite directions right I'm feeling- Warmer towards evangelicalism and the cultures going the opposite direction.
0: Right. And that's a political <laughs> thing a little bit. And that, like I said, I'd love to talk to you about that, but just not today.
1: So what I, what I would encourage people to think about is that be careful, really check out the sources of who you're thinking or talking or reading about. Yes. That's 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 really important is because there's a lot of people out there, especially on the national stage, wanting to destroy people's reputations and, and do terrible damage to people, really. This kind of comes back to your point, I think. What I found is that, you know, kind of this robust evangelical culture that I found, um, most people don't see how it has been transformative in so many people's lives. Right. And... This was in part having done the evangelical versus liberal book is I realized, oh, my goodness, evangelicals not only are more active in their churches, they're more active in service than our liberal Protestants by a long shot. So we, we actually published an article doing a, a study of comparing a service done by liberal Protestants compared to evangelicals, and there was not even a close call. And so what liberal Protestants have traditionally bragged about is, oh, yeah, we're service-oriented. We do we do the hard work of service to the communities, whatever. Right. And the truth of the matter is, no, not so much. And what's interesting about evangelicals is, is that they tend not to talk even about what they do for others. Right. They really, you know, if if we're thinking about the scripture now, they really practice that biblical admonition, you know, do but don't tell.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of going into your prayer closet and, you know, praying in secret. It's I've always had a bit of a cringe factor whenever I try and say, hey, look what our church is doing. It just there's something in it that doesn't feel right. And I'm not sure where that comes from. But I feel like let's let the actions speak for themselves in a sense, you know?
1: Well, that's a beautiful impulse, Richard. That's my job <laughs> is to find out, like, what's really going on? And again and again, I see which, you know, what Bethany is doing is tremendous in terms of really meeting the needs of people that everyone else is ignoring, especially in these days with with the COVID-19, you know, what an important thing it is to do is to meet the needs and serve those who are invisible in our society. Yeah. And, the, and the frank uh, lesson for me is that liberal policy has talked a good game, but not done not done that much in in my mind, you know, that's arguable, you know, and and this has personal ramifications for me too. I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but in in part me coming to know evangelicalism and really understanding it from the inside out allowed me to kind of reinvigorate that, that kind of evangelical part of my past and I'm not sure I'd call myself an evangelical theologically because, you know, I think you know me well enough that- Yeah, we've had some good conversations. I have some other interests besides that in the Christian tradition. It's a rich and great tradition. But what I found is that, hey, these evangelicals are happy, healthy, great people. And then I marry one. So, you know. And now there you are sitting in
0: the window every Sunday. It's so delightful.
1: Yeah, no. So it's not, uh, you know, this kind of has had an effect on my life. Did that answer that question? I'm not sure.
0: I think it answered the question really well. I I think uh, one of my main takeaways is to observe that what a community says they're about is less important than what their actual actions reflect. And one of the things that gives me hope is there are a lot of communities that are, to use St. Francis' uh, dictum, they're they're preaching through their actions. They're crossing social divides. They're feeding the hungry. They're caring for the homeless. They're they're giving dignity to people in the margins, and they're not making a big splash about it because they don't need to. The calling isn't promotion. The calling is to just be the presence of Jesus. Jesus can promote himself quite well, thank you, <laughs> and so. I love to see that uh, in in churches, and that you have discovered that as a prevailing, not absolute, but a prevailing pattern, and certainly not perfect, and no church is. That just gives me uh, a lot of encouragement and hope in my own job, and my hope would be for listeners as well to say, uh, being involved in a community that is seeking to be the presence of Christ is a great way to invest your time and resources.
1: Totally. Yeah, I don't think that can be said enough. I I just think the national, international news, that's in part why we thought, I want to start the Center for Global Christian Studies. You know, and I'm working with Chris Seipel and others on this. And we wanted to tell the real story. And what I mean by that is to get at the empirical facts on the ground. And really, that's why I love being a sociologist is that we don't want to just hear what people say. But see what they do, right? Um, right. And, and that's the critical point. Is is, and I think that's that is what Jesus's message is all about. It's what Jesus did, not. It's also what he said, obviously. But but if he didn't do something, if he didn't heal the heal the sick. He didn't free the, those who were encumbered. Nothing would have happened. Absolutely. You
0: Yeah, you know, I think uh, Gandhi talked about this a little bit. Remember, he kind of said that your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. So it starts with belief. But Gandhi would say, I can know what somebody believes, not by what they say, but by what they do. And I think Jesus essentially said the same thing when he said, hey, if you hear these things, you're blessed, not if you hear them, not if you talk about them. Not even if you teach them, which is super convicting for me, but yes. if, you do them, if you do them. And I, I, I think that's where, in a sense, uh, proving ground of our faith has to be. It sounds like your book points us in that direction, which is a really rich asset.
1: You know, a- another way to put it, Richard, is that megachurches recreate small towns mm. in cities and in suburbs and etc. Some of us might not think that's a good idea even, but sort of in the tradition of the mid-century, 20th century, they were also places where people kept each other accountable, where people nurtured each other's lives, where people who were invisible were taken in. The homeless were helped, you know, out at my back door or taken into my basement or rooms or so in other words, these small towns were places where people's needs could be met and they could be nurtured back to health. You know, one of the traditions of, of course, the Christian church is that, you know, we're a hospital um, right. and we are there for all people. And uh, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, that's the best of the tradition.
0: Yeah, no, I, this has been great. I do want to put links to all your books and highlight this one in particular, the new High on God book, also to some studies that you've done. And then, Jim, I really do want to have you back. We talked yesterday about having you back sometime in October to talk how faith and politics intersect. I think it'll be timely. I'm looking forward yep. to it as well. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time today and investing um, in this podcast.
1: That's great, Richard. I, I appreciate you and what you do as a, as a pastor and human being and as a friend and have so much respect for your vision and what you created at Bethany. So God bless you. Well, thanks, friend, and best wishes in
0: your teaching uh, teaching this spring quarter. And, uh, my hope is that you guys are back in the classroom soon.
1: Okay, right. thank you, man.
0: All right. See you later, Jim.
1: Okay, take care.